You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, do you ever feel like the task of this before you is just greater than the resources that are within you? Do you feel a little bit overwhelmed? Well, uh, we're going to talk about that today uh, in the story we're about to read. When they came for Israel's first king... They didn't find him in a throne room. They found him in a baggage room. He was he was hiding with the luggage, the text tells us. I know I can relate to that. Uh, when Jesus comes to me and says, George, I've got a great plan for your life, my first instinct is to go, you must be confusing me for somebody else. I am an ordinary, ordinary guy. I'm not qualified. I'm not ready. I'm not able. Do you feel like this sometimes? You just want to pull the covers back up over your head and hope that you get another eight hours, right? I'm not ready yet. In moments like these, the question isn't, do you believe in yourself? The question is, do you believe in your God? Because here's the good news of Pentecost. God believes in you. He entrusts his Holy Spirit to you. He entrusts his mission to you. Wow. We're going to explore that today. We're talking about simple steps for those of us who want to explore what it means to follow Jesus. And uh, today Jesus brings us to two passages in the Bible that talk both about the Holy Spirit, Old Testament and New Testament. So let's open up to first New Testament, Acts chapter two. No, one. Acts chapter one, verse eight on page 884. If you didn't bring a Bible, pull the black book out. And uh, let's stand and read this one aloud together. Just one verse, Acts 1, verse 8. Would you read with me? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. All right, let's uh, flip over to the Old Testament. Please be seated as you do. I'm going to read the second one if you'll let me on our behalf. Um, it's back in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 27. That's on page 220. We've been in Samuel before in this series. Um, started off with the calling of Samuel as a little boy. Page 220. And uh, just try to visualize this scene as God tries to convince a man named Saul that he's going to be the first king of Israel. Here, here we go. We're kind of catching it in the middle of the story. Verse 27, as they were going down to the outskirts of the town, Samuel, he's the prophet, said to Saul, he's the future king, tell the boy, his servant boy, to go on before us, and when he's passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it on Saul's head, the symbol of the Holy Spirit, and kissed him. And he said, the Lord has anointed you, Saul, you, ruler over his people, Israel. You shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their enemies all around. Now, this should be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you, ruler over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you'll meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. They'll say to you, Donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has stopped worrying about them and is worrying about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? And then Samuel continues, 
Then you shall go on from there further and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three kids, meaning uh, goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. They will greet you and will give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from them. And after that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim at the place where the Philistine garrison is. There, as you come to the town, you'll meet a band of prophets coming down from the shrine with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre, playing in front of them. They will be in a prophetic frenzy. Then the Spirit of the Lord will possess you, and you will be in a prophetic frenzy along with them and be turned into a different person. And when these signs meet you, do whatever you see fit to do, for God is with you. And you shall go down to Gilgal ahead of me, and then I will come down to you to present burnt offerings and offer sacrifices of well-being. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. As Saul turned away to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. But all these signs were fulfilled that day. And they were going from there to Gibeah, a band of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God possessed him, and he fell into a prophetic frenzy along with them. But all the people knew who knew him before saw how he prophesied with the prophets. The people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? A man of the place answered, and who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? When his prophetic frenzy had ended, he went home. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Isn't that a strange but beautiful story of transformation in the life of one man? I love that. But notice this. The word of God came to Saul, and his first instinct is to say no. Saul, I've got a great plan for your life. And he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think you've got the wrong guy. Look at verse 21, uh, chapter 9. He says, I'm only a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel. And my family is the humblest of all the families of the tribes of Benjamin. Why then have you spoken to me in this way? I think you mean, I think you meant him or her, but not me. See, you seem like a little confused. And sometimes God can seem a little confused, like he doesn't know who he's dealing with when he comes to you. And yet, he comes on purpose. Now, this is, for me, provoking all kinds of questions. The two I want to focus on today is, why would we say no to God when he wants something so beautiful in our lives and world? And the other question is, how does God say yes to us despite our no. Now, if you're, if you don't see yourself yet as a believer, I want you to just think not so much about God's call. We might think of it that way for you, for you, but you could just think about it as opportunity. When an opportunity comes, I don't know, for an adventure, for challenge, or to engage in a struggle of some kind, to embrace some kind of a change, why is it that even there we tend to say, I don't know, I'm up for that? Uh, essentially, no. Well, let's explore four reasons that grow out of this text reasons that we say no to God before we come to God's yes. First of all, routine. 
you and I tend to keep doing what we're doing because it's what we've always done. Can I get an amen from a Presbyterian in the room? We're great with tradition. We, we resist change like nobody in the world. Okay, we're really good with routine. Keep doing it because we've always done it, right? Well, this is what's going on with Saul as well. Notice embedded in the directions that Samuel gives him, there is something surprising to the ancient reader. That is, he's told to walk by a garrison. Did you notice that? There's a Philistine garrison. Just It was like a landmark to them. He doesn't even notice it. Um, other than just that it's a place the path goes by. Well, the Hebrew reader notices, because a Philistine garrison always means trouble. This is an enemy outpost. This is a military camp of your enemy in the center of Israel. But we've walked by it so many times, we hardly even notice it anymore. We just think of it as like a landmark, right? Now, let me tell you, this is the place, these are the people that are about to bring us Goliath in a few chapters. This garrison represents an existential threat. If it is allowed to remain and to fester, it will bring Israel down. And yet there it is. And I want to suggest to you that I, and perhaps you, have garrisons in your life that you allow to remain simply because you've gotten used to them. They're just a part of the routine. There's bitterness, there's substance abuse, there's anger, there's self-pity. We see those things in our lives. We don't like them. People around us tell us we should get rid of them. And we say, yeah, when we see that garrison, somebody should really do something about that. If they leave it here, someone's going to get hurt. But we don't because it's familiar and change is hard. So in some ways, our routines keep us from even imagining what might be possible if we say yes to God or embrace a new opportunity. Strongholds in our lives. Second reason we say no to God is impatience. We keep doing what we're doing because we have tried something different, but we failed, and so now we're going to quit. We're going to evaluate way too early. Jesus always works with a really long timeline, by the way. Have you noticed that? He says, I'm coming back soon. Well, that was two years, thousand years ago, okay? We get a little bit impatient after two days saying, hey, what's wrong? We tried the Jesus thing, and it's just not really fixing everything, right? Come on. Something similar is going on in Saul's life. Notice in verse 9 of chapter 10, we read, As Saul turned away to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and these signs were fulfilled that day. Well, that day doesn't mean a literal 24-hour period. Actually, this is a Hebrew way of compressing a long timeline into a simple statement, just to kind of focus on what's important in the narrative. At UC Berkeley, one of the great Hebrew scholars of our day, Robert Alter, has written about verse 9. It's not implied that the transformation and the signs occur the very moment Saul turned to go. Just collapsed a whole, a whole timeline into one gesture, his turning away to go. But no, he's got a, he's got a long journey of many steps. First, you're going to go by Rachel's grave. Then you're going to go by the Oak of Tabor. And then you're going to walk by the garrison. And then you're going to start to hear the music. How often are our good intentions to change defeated by impatience and our unwillingness to embrace incremental change, the baby steps that we would need to take before we can reach the destination we believe we're called to reach? We get impatient way too fast. We say, I tried that, it didn't work, and so I can't make it work. 
There's a third reason we say no to God, and that's social pressure. We keep doing what we're doing because we can't afford to risk the approval of peers, and our peer network has very powerful means of reinforcing the norms, and we live out those norms. We see this as a chronic problem for Saul. In chapter 15, verse 24, he tells Samuel, this is later on, of course, he says, I disobeyed God, and the reason I did it was I was afraid what the people would think. Did you hear that? I was afraid what the people would think. That's immobilizing. That's paralyzing. (laughs) Two weeks ago, I met a lawyer, and he said, George, I was all the way through law school and already in a high-paying position at a high-powered law firm before I realized I can't stand the law. I mean, not that he wanted to disobey it. He just practicing law wasn't at all of any interest to him. I was like, what? What? Why did you even take the LSATs? He said, my parents. It was the way I was raised. It was what I thought I needed to do to be a, a legitimate member of society with status. Social pressure. It binds us into molds that may not be God's mold for us. May not be a mold of our own choosing even. Okay. Four, comparison. We keep doing what we're doing because someone else can do it better. Again, back to 21 of chapter 9. When Samuel comes knocking on Saul's door, what he first says is, I am of the weakest tribes, the humblest families. Why are you even talking to me? He's comparing himself to everybody else. And this can be paralyzing. I've told you before, we so often tend to compare our weaknesses to other people's strengths, and that just puts us under the pile. And we go, why should I do that when I can list 12 other people who can do it better than I can? These people are better looking than I am. They're smarter than I am. They've got a better education. They've got more money. They've got better gifts. You know, we say to God, here I am, God. Send Aaron, right? Let Aaron do it. Send my small group leader. Send my mom. Send my Sunday school teacher. Send a U-Min student, right? Just don't send me. Because I, I, I'm not the kind of guy you're looking for. I'm not the kind of gal who knows how to do this stuff. Send someone who's seen the movie. I'm just a regular, ordinary Christian trying to get by. You know, it's enough for me to make it to church on Sunday. This whole mission thing is way past me. Comparison. Okay, so routine, impatience, social pressure, comparison. Now, if you spell like I do, I just happen to notice this. I feel very clever about this. The first letter of all those spell add up to risk. R-I-S-C. Okay, risk, right? We just say it to help you remember this, because we all have a risk profile, right? There are things that, that make it hard for us to break into that new season of life that God is inviting each and every one of us to. I want you to be aware of these risk factors, because you don't need to pay any attention to them. When the Holy Spirit comes, we just were singing, like, have your way with us. Do you think you could trust the Holy Spirit to break through those elements? I mean... What, what could be more beautiful than allow the Spirit of Jesus to come and say, I don't need to pay attention to any of those things. I don't care about the routine. I don't care about your impatience. I've got all the time in the world. The social pressures don't matter because my love is so great for you. Who, who would you compare yourself to when I'm the one who made you just the way you are? It's the Holy Spirit is saying to us. See, God won't take no for an answer. I love that about him, but it also drives me nuts. He says yes to you. And it's like all caps, yes. And he means yes. How does he say that? Well, the, the short answer is he says it through his Holy Spirit. So I'm going to do it in you. 
I'm going to do it with you. I'm going to do it for you. And I'm going to do it through you. So yes, he says, it's you, but it's not just you. It's you plus. It's you plus me. It's you as you plus me as the Holy Spirit. See, and that and that's what happens to Saul. And it's such a beautiful picture of what Pentecost is all about for you and me. So let's look at this, how this happens. Let's look at the promise. Look at verse 7 in chapter 10. Actually, 6 and 7. And if you have the, an NIV translation, I really like the NIV at this point a little bit better. So I'm going to read the NIV, but you can look at the NRSV, which is what our black pew Bibles are. Verse 6 says, here's the promise. Listen to this. Same as Saul. I, I know about you. I know, I know about you. But here's the promise. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you. And you will prophesy with them, with these prophets. And you will be changed into a different person. And once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do. And that's that's the translation difference right there. And I says, do whatever your hand finds to do. We'll come back to that in a moment. For God is with you. Boom. Now, inside of this sentence, there is the promise of power, the promise of potential, and the promise, most of all, of presence. Let's just unpack that really quickly. It's just so wonderful. Come power, the Holy Spirit will come powerfully upon you. Our translation says possess. It means to impart power. It means to make successful. We find it in Genesis 24. Abraham sends a slave to go find a wife, and he will be made successful because God is going with him. And Isaiah 55 tells us that whenever God's word comes, it always accomplishes the purposes for which it was sent. And that word there again is used. God's word is always granted success. And so this is what Samuel is saying to Saul. You will be made successful. He, he will come powerfully upon you. He will empower you. So that's the promise of power. And then secondly, this, this idea of a different person, which the first time I read it, I'm like, huh, I kind of like George. I'd like to remain George if possible. No, God's not saying he, Saul is not going to be Saul anymore. He, he's saying you're going to be a different kind of person, you see. Now you're the kind of person that isn't bound by your mortality, that's opened up as a vessel and filled with divinity. This is This is like the new Saul. It's Saul plus. It's Saul plus God. And we should really read this in parallel with verse 9, where we we see God gave him another heart. And this points us forward, those of us who are believers, to Ezekiel 36, uh, verse 26, where God says to Israel, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to take out that stony heart, put you a heart of flesh. I'm going to put my spirit in you. It's one of the new covenant promises in the Old Testament. And Paul talks about that, that new heart as well. It's the same you, but you've got a new center of identity out of which to operate, live a new set of affections now, love for God and love for neighbor. So uh, there's a new potential now, the potential that God's power unleashes in your life. And then thirdly, there's, there's this presence. And it's easy to see this. It just says God is with you. God is with you. It's present. Power, potential, presence, all wrapped up in a person, the Holy Spirit. Now let's take a moment just to ask, who is the Holy Spirit? Because 
when I read this text, I, I thought to myself, I'm not really sure I want a, um, a prophetic frenzy. <laughs> I was at a party recently, and they were doing the electric slide. And I've done the electric slide before, but I can't really do it to save my life. And I thought, if that's like a prophetic frenzy, it was so embarrassing. I don't, I don't, I don't want that. So that wasn't in my notes. But... Um, <laughs> If you want, if anyone wants to teach me how to do the electric slide, I will take lessons on this. Who's the Holy Spirit who would do this? Well, look, He is God. And the extent to which you and I don't understand the, the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives is the extent to which we are dramatically impoverished in life. The Holy Spirit is God, one with the Son. One with the Father. And he's a person. A little bit of teaching here. Let me just run through some things. The Bible tells us that the Spirit thinks in Acts 15. That the Spirit has emotions. He gets sad in Ephesians 4. That the Spirit speaks in Acts 15. That he teaches in John 14. That he leads in Romans 8. That he prays in Romans 8. He's referred to as the Spirit of Christ or the Spirit of Jesus. Oftentimes in places like Romans 8 and Acts 16. This is the personal, powerful presence of God in your life. This is Jesus through the Holy Spirit in your life. We can think of him as the one who comes to give us love, the one who comes to bring joy, the instigator of joy. Sometimes I call him the resident comic of heaven, to bring the laughter of heaven into our hearts. That's who the Holy Spirit is. You say, well, how do, how do I know that I have the Holy Spirit in my life? Well, the answer is by faith. You know it because God tells you it's, he's in your life. That, by the way, is the same way that Saul knows. Do you remember that we began this conversation called 101 with Samuel? Do you remember the little boy that was in the room sleeping and he heard someone calling him? He thought it was Eli in the next room, the priest. And Eli comes in and, no, you're, you're, it's God who's talking to you. And Eli teaches this little boy how to listen to God. Well, this is now the boy. That was Samuel. He's grown up. He's learned not only how to listen to God, but how to live with God. And he's the one that God sent, this prophet now, to come to Saul. And he says in verse 27, he says, uh, um, I, I want to make known to you the word of God. And the Hebrew literally says, I want to cause you to hear the word of God. And really the way that Samuel is meant to know that the Holy Spirit is in his life is not just these signs, but the promise of the word of God. And you go, well, I've never been in an ecstatic frenzy before, and I don't think I really want one, thank you very much. And, or maybe I never even experienced any of the sign gifts that we read about in the New Testament. Well, you know what? Most people don't. In fact, in the Apostle Paul says, if you really want to aspire to one of the sign gifts, go for it. But the most important one you pray for is love, because that's the greatest sign that the Holy Spirit is in your life, love. And you go, well, I've never really had an emotional experience. I can't feel it. I've never felt the Holy Spirit. You say, well, that's okay because the Holy Spirit isn't an emotional state. The Holy Spirit is a person. And emotions come and go, but the person stays. And the way that you know the Holy Spirit's in your life is by faith because the Word of God promises you that He's there. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit's in your life. Jesus has promised that. In 1 Corinthians 12, for example, we read, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And we read, quote, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. You can't even say Jesus is Lord with meaning except by the Holy Spirit. And in Romans 8, we read, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Because belonging to Jesus and having the Spirit of Christ are the same thing. 
So if you're a believer, you could just know by faith, by trust, remember faith is trust in God's Word that you have the Holy Spirit. So when you come to that task before you that's greater than the resources within you, you can say, the resources within me now include much more than just me. They include the Holy Spirit. Remember, I believe in the Holy Spirit, you say to yourself. Well, how do we access that power, finally, that potential, that presence? And here's where I want to come back to the hand in verse 7. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds you to do, for God is with you, Samuel says to Saul. Once you've heard God's word, once you believe the promise that the Holy Spirit is with you, then you look at where your hand is. Where is it? Is it on a keyboard? Is it on an instrument? Is it on a child's head? Is it with a pair of scissors? Where is your hand this week? What are you working on? What's right there in front of you? What are your circumstances? Because whatever it is, you've got the Holy Spirit. And you just do whatever it is you would do knowing you have the power and the potential and the presence of God with which to do it. This is such a comfort to me. This brings such joy and confidence. What it means is you are the right person. You are the right person in the right place, at the right time, with the right stuff. No matter where you are, what you face this week, God will be with you. Let me give you two final examples of this. One is a, um, a story I heard last week. A woman was sharing about uh, a surgery she performed. A patient came to her with uh, a dog bite that had removed much of the facial tissue in her face, almost all of one of her cheeks. It was this horrible accident. It was just like devastating dog bite. And she said to herself, oh my gosh, what in the world can I do? And she consulted with other surgeons. She consulted with her department chair. And they all kind of conclude the best you could do is a series of incremental surgeries over a long period of time. It was slowly, but there would always be a cavity in her face, this horrible scar. She thought, that's awful. I didn't know how to even break that to her, the patient and her husband. The day of the surgery came, and this surgeon began the day like she brings all of her surgery. She's a believer. And so she said, I prayed. I asked the Holy Spirit to come and fill this room, to come and work through me and to heal the patient. She prayed in the, in the OR. And as she worked, she noticed something strange she'd never seen before. She said, I, I started to see what looked like a pattern of dots. And they seemed to be connecting. They seemed to be kind of emanating from an old scar tissue that was there on her face. And I just started to follow that pattern of dots. And it led me across her face. And I was pulling the tissue from underneath. And it was this sort of zippered fashion thing. It was I was able actually to bring these pieces together in a way that I hadn't thought was possible. And the resident who was watching over her shoulder was going, whoa. Whoa, exclaiming. She said, yeah, this is really amazing. What she did was on the spot, she invented a new procedure for this one case. And when she came out of the room, she walked into the waiting room, told her husband, she's not going to need any more surgeries, and she's hardly going to notice a scar. It's like, how did that happen? I mean, you could just imagine this woman. She, When she tells the story, by the way, she gets very emotional, especially when she talks about the dots there. Because she was there saying, essentially, I'm an ordinary person. I don't know what to do. What's going to happen? And then God reframed that. It's not a question of what you can or can't do. It's a question of what I can or can't do. And I am in the habit. And I delight in how helping ordinary people do extraordinary things. And the Holy Spirit did that that day. 
What's your challenge today? What do you face when you get on the phone or FaceTime somebody later on today? What's the opportunity? Maybe you're struggling in your dating life. Maybe you're struggling because you're thinking about, okay, summer vacation. I'm going to be back home with my parents. And I always tend to revert to that childhood pattern. They treat me like a child. I want to be like in the company of peers. We're adults here. Can we be that this summer? That's a challenge. Maybe you're working through your recovery. Or maybe you're just facing the indignities of old age and going, I could live another 20 years with this. How do I face that? Or you're saying, you know what? I'm going to start a new ministry, a new business venture. Maybe I just want to be a witness in my neighborhood. How do you face this opportunity? How do you manage your risk profile? How will you embrace the Holy Spirit? You have no need to hide from these opportunities. You have what it takes. You plus, as ordinary as you are, prepare yourself for an extraordinary God. The final image is this. Uh, we've been enjoying the wedding. I don't know if anybody got up early. I did not. Uh, I just don't care that much. I gotta be honest. I did turn the radio on at 2.15 thinking BBC, I was awake and, uh, there was nothing. <laughs> there was nothing about it, so. But anyways, I've been thinking about it and my wife got me to watch The Crown again. So we went to the library and we got The Crown and there's one episode that was very beautiful, I thought. Um, when you watch The Crown, it's about Elizabeth and Queen Elizabeth and you get the sense that none of them really wants to sit on the throne, which is weird to me, but they felt the burden and the responsibility and the heaviness of it and it kind of ruins their lives, you know, they sort of feel. And there's a king, you know, Edward, remember Edward uh, was king for just a matter of months and then he fell in love with an American and uh, he, he abdicated the throne even before his coronation. And in one of these episodes, you kind of get the regret that he feels even though he's free to live his life as he wants. You could see him playing the bagpipes um, in tears. Earlier in that episode, we get Edward describing Elizabeth's coronation where she's anointed, which is the most sacred moment when the, uh, I guess it's the, Archbishop of Canterbury puts a little oil on the forehead, chest, hands, and uh, she's anointed, representative of the divinity. And so Edward's in Paris where he's living with his wife, and they're watching on the television set. Now, you can see this for Elizabeth, and he's describing all the pageantry to the Americans and French who are there watching. And at one point, uh, he says, the Duke says, he's the Duke of Windsor, he says, symbol upon symbol, an unfathomable web of arcane mystery and liturgy, blurring so many lines, no clergyman or historian or lawyer could ever untangle any of it. And someone says, it's crazy, one of his guests. And then the Duke of Windsor says, on the contrary, it's perfectly sane. The Duke says, who wants transparency when you can have magic? Who wants prose when you can have poetry? Pull away the veil, and what you are left with? An ordinary young woman of modest ability and little imagination. But wrap her up like this and anoint her with oil. And hey, presto, what do you have? A goddess. And nearly so with you and with me today as well. Because the promise of Jesus is true. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bring the laughter of heaven into our hearts, would you? Fill us afresh. Like the the sails of a ship, blow the wind of heaven against us. Open us up to your life and send us wherever you will knowing that we are your agents here, kingdom agents, royal agents on earth. Fulfill what you began 
and use us in the process, we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.